Amen. It's good to be with you again this morning. Uh, thankful for those who are uh, able to be with us as we join together in worshiping our God. I'd like you to look with me, if you don't mind, at Malachi chapter 2. I appreciate uh, Brother Billy reading these verses. I'd like to read them again with you because this certainly will be our beginning place as we think about the idea of marriage. And I really want us to think about the idea of marriage and juxtapose two ways of looking at it, covenant and contract. I think the world looks at marriage one way and I think God looks at it another way. I want us to see how God looks at it here, beginning in Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 11 beginning. The Bible says Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holiness of Jehovah, which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign God. Jehovah will cut off to the man that does this, him that wakes and him that answers out of the tents of Jacob and him that offers an offering unto Jehovah of hosts. And this again you do. You cover the altar of Jehovah with tears, with weeping and with sighing, insomuch that he regards not the offering anymore, neither receives it with good will at your hand. Yet you say, wherefore? Because Jehovah has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. And did he not make one, although he had the residue of the spirit, and wherefore one, he sought a godly seed. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. It's interesting when you look at the book of Malachi. Malachi is, of course, the last installment we have in the Old Testament. The last window, one of the last several books we have that provide us some insight into the spiritual condition of God's people before we had 400 years of silence, before we had that 400-year period where we didn't have any inspired writings. We, we have this book of Malachi. And if we want to understand the condition of God's people, before John the Baptist came on the scene and began to pave the way for the coming of our Lord, we can look and and get a pretty good start right here in Malachi. In this book, God is explaining the difficulties that he's having with his people. He is indicting them, if you will, and uh, just about everyone is worthy to be blamed. The leaders and the priests so and so forth, and the common men as well. In this particular passage... God is helping us to see that his people were not uh, moving based on a proper understanding of marriage. One of the things that was a problem is that the people were marrying uh, women outside of Israel. The, the people of God were marrying women who knew nothing about God. And of course, that was a difficulty because it would lead them away from God. I mean, Tying yourself together with someone who doesn't know God, love God, and respect God is a problem. It always has been. 
But then in addition to that, they they had not only begun to take wives who who didn't know God, but of course they had left the wives they had already taken in Israel. God had a feeling about this. I mean to say he did have an opinion. God does care who we marry. And he does care how we handle the marriages that we enter into. And so he says to them a couple of times, you have dealt treacherously with your wives. You have abandoned them. You have abused them. And you know what? There are some people who would make light of that. There are some people who wouldn't think that is as significant as God thinks it is. But God explains here, because you have abused your wives, because you have run out on them, you and I have a problem. You you come to me and you try to present these offerings to me. You you come to me and sometimes with weeping and with tears and and you want to present a sacrifice to me. But guess what? I won't receive it. Not at your hand. You mistreat your wives, you disrespect your marriages, and then you think you can come to me and worship me. I won't accept it. I won't accept you. Israel had difficulty understanding what marriage is all about. Israel had difficulty treating marriage the way God intended men and women to treat it. And because of that, you see, Israel was was estranged from its God. I look at a passage like that and I say, well, uh, God says this is the wife of your covenant. They didn't understand what a covenant was, apparently. You know what? People today don't understand what a covenant is either. Sometimes I hear people talk about marriage and they'll call it a contract. They'll talk about a a marital contract. Well, Well, maybe if I wasn't an attorney, that wouldn't bother me so much. You know, some people don't understand the difference between a contract and a covenant, but, but hey, there's a big difference. People today treat marriage like a contract. You know, I have a contract with a guy to cut my grass. Uh, I just kind of got to a place, I look at my wife and say, wife, I, I just don't have the energy to get out there and cut it. I'll enter into a contract with someone else to come and cut it. Come over and see my lawn and tell me what it's going to run me for you to cut it. He says it'll cost you so many dollars. Fine. When are you going to cut it? Oh, whenever the weather allows. You don't have to be here when the weather allows. I'll show up and cut it. And when I come home and see that he's cut it, I send a check in the mail. All I care about is my grass getting cut. And all he cares about is my check going through in his bank. I don't know anything about his family and I'm not asking. Now, see, I may ask because, uh, you know, I'm a Christian. I'm concerned about people. I want to get to know people and so forth. But I'm just saying, in order for us to make this arrangement work, I don't need to know about your family. I, I don't need to know what's going on in your life. We are exchanging goods and services. That's the nature of our relationship. That's a contract. You know, in law school, contracts, one of the first classes you take, they'll tell you a contract is offer and acceptance. Will you do it for this? Yes, I will. That's a contract. They'll tell you a contract is a bargain for exchange. We we exchange promises. We exchange goods and services. And so what matters to us is not the relationship, but the goods and the services. That's a contract. 
Because people look at marriage that way, they enter into contracts and they put conditions on what's going to happen when we break it. Prenuptial agreements. Hey, listen, we're going to stand before God and man and we're going to exchange these vows. And when it doesn't work. Here's how we're going to dissolve it. That's a contract. That's not a covenant. See, a covenant is different. Covenant is not about the goods and the services. Contract is all about the relationship that is formed. I want to think with you about that for a little while this morning. You know, if we don't spend some time thinking about marriage, we'll be the only ones not thinking about it. God is thinking about it. I know it's important to him. You know, in Genesis 2, the Bible tells me, the Bible shows me that God is the one who created marriage. He's the one who instituted marriage in the beginning. In 2 Corinthians 11, the Bible tells me, uh, beginning in verse 2 there, that, that Paul was speaking to that church and he says to them, I have espoused you as a chaste virgin. He's, he's mentioning the relationship between the church and God. And he's saying, I have given you to God, to Christ, the same way a man is, is taking and receiving a wife. You can't understand what's happening between those who have given themselves over to Christ and Christ unless you understand what God is talking about in marriage. I look at Revelation 21, you know, and the Bible tells me that that's going to be that last marriage where where God is going to Jesus is going to receive his bride. What I'm saying is, if we don't think about marriage, we'll be the only ones. Because the word of God wraps itself all around this idea of marriage and then commends it as being honorable among all. God isn't the only one who's thinking about marriage. I don't know if you ever thought about it this way, but you know, in the garden, I see that Satan was... uh, he was concerned about marriage. There's Adam and Eve there in the garden. And uh, now Satan, he, he knows more than we give him credit for, I think. Because Satan knew what God wanted for Adam and Eve. And he understood the way their relationship was supposed to work. I mean, he knew that Adam was first formed, then Eve. But he comes to Eve. And the Bible says that she was deceived being in the transgression. But guess what? Adam was not deceived. Satan picked on that man's wife, helped her to rebel against God, and then used her to help her husband to do the same. If we don't think about marriage, friends, we're the only ones who aren't thinking about it. God is thinking about it, and the devil is as well. Our world is thinking about it, doing everything it can to undermine marriage and to to help us not esteem it as highly as we ought to. Y'all see what's happening. Don't you see it? People are not marrying at the rate they used to. That does not mean that people aren't acting like they are married. It doesn't mean that people aren't, uh, we used to call it living in sin, uh, then they started calling it shacking up, now they just don't call it anything. It doesn't mean that people aren't trying to enjoy the privileges and the blessings of being married before they get married. It doesn't mean that. It just means that people don't even bother to make the commitment to one another before they do those things anymore. And then when they do. Sometimes six months. 
Sometimes one year. Five. People quit. You know, I counsel people uh, rather frequently over the years. I've had occasion to counsel people before they get married. You know, I just, I just have a rule. I won't marry anyone if I don't counsel them. So anyone who's ever asked me, I had to sit down with them and counsel. And it can take some time because I want to make sure people understand what they're signing up for. But when we, when we sit down and we talk, I said, listen, we need to make sure we understand what are you guys going to do in six months or a year or three, three years or 10 or 20 when you guys decide that you just can't seem to get along? What are we going to do? Because you know what people do today, don't you? They quit. People will sometimes uh, go to a court or whatever their proper authority is going to be and they'll say, we just have, listen to this, irreconcilable differences. What does that mean? I wish a court would ask them, why can't you reconcile? We just don't even seem to care anymore. I want you to think about marriage through the prism of a covenant because that's the way the Bible presents it. I want you to see this morning that there are at least three things you need to understand about a covenant generally, and I want you to see how those things apply in a marriage relationship. Covenants are, number one, intended to produce unbreakable, close bonds between two parties. Covenants, number two, are characterized by complete fealty and fidelity. Covenants, number three, are witnessed and administered by God. Marriage covenants, I know they are unique. I know they are distinct in that the parties that pledge themselves to a marriage must be of opposite gender by God's design. But covenants always create family relationships where family relationships didn't necessarily exist. I'll give you an example. You remember Jonathan and David. Jonathan and David were good friends. Uh, The Bible tells us that they sort of hit it off. I mean, Jonathan was Saul's son and Saul had enlisted David into his employ. And David was a man who who acquitted himself quite well. And these two men seemed to have been in similar in age. And and they had this pre-existing friendship because of that. But at a certain point, they decided to be something more than friends. Look at 1 Samuel 18. If you look at 1 Samuel 18, and uh, verse number 3 is what I want to see in particular, I think you'll get the idea. In 1 Samuel 18, beginning at verse number 1, the Bible says that when it came to pass, when he made an end of speaking unto Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him, listen to this, as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him go home, uh, go no more home to his father's house. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. Why couldn't they just be friends? Why couldn't they just be close colleagues? They wanted something more than a friendship with each other. They entered into a covenant, and by virtue of their covenant, they became something more than they were before they entered into it. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 1. Of course, uh, Saul uh, 
sort of lost his mind. He certainly lost his way spiritually, and he tries to hunt David down, and uh, he declares war on David, and ultimately the Lord vindicates David, and, and Saul loses his life, and in the process, his son Jonathan loses his life as well. If you look at 2 Samuel 1, look at how, how David receives this information in verse 26. He says, I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant hast thou been unto me. Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. They made a covenant with one another, and a covenant makes the participants brothers of one bone and one flesh. These two men were in a relationship that could not be altered. could only be ended by death. Similarly, when a man and a woman enter into a marital covenant, they become one family. You know, this is this is mentioned, of course, in Malachi, the verses we just looked at in Malachi 2. The Bible tells us that that God joins these two together in verses 14 and 15. In Malachi 2, in verse 14, yet you say, wherefore, because Jehovah has been witness between thee and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. Listen to this. And did he not make one? In a marriage covenant, God makes the two one. Don't we see that in the book of Genesis? Yes, ma'am, and yes, sir. And don't we see Jesus referring to that also in Matthew 19? Yes, ma'am, and yes, sir. When two people, a man and a woman, stand before God and man, and they say, we want to be one husband and wife, guess what? If they do it according to his design, God makes them one. The strongest possible bond two human beings can have in this lifetime. In Genesis 2, when God puts Adam to sleep and he brings Eve to him after having taken the rib from his side, Adam acknowledges the difference in this relationship. It would be different than any other he would have. He says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then in verse 25, Moses says she was his wife. When God brought her to him. And however it was that this acknowledgement was made. They were bound together in a special, in a special way. In Matthew 19, Jesus makes reference to that when he's being asked about marriage. And I think it's interesting. I don't want to, I don't want to descend into a lesson on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, but, but I think it's interesting that, that God places this idea of covenant in, Matthew, in Malachi 2 in, in the context of people mishandling their marriages by running out on one another and taking new wives. I think it's interesting that when Jesus goes back to it in Matthew 19, he does it in this same context. Uh, Shall a man put away his wife for every cause? Jesus said, listen, I know you know better than that. Haven't you at least read the Bible? What God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Matthew 19, 5 and 6. Strongest possible bond. Jonathan's bond with David wasn't broken until Jonathan lost his life. The bond between husband and wife in a marriage is not properly broken until one of them 
leaves this earth. In 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 39, you know, Paul says there, uh, a woman is bound to her husband so long as he lives. But if he be dead, she's free to marry whomever she wants to. She can marry whosoever she will, but only in the Lord, according to his design. And haven't you seen this acknowledgement time and time again when two people enter into a marriage relationship? Haven't you seen it time and time again? They exchange their vows and what do they say almost invariably? What do they say? Until death do us part. The problem is they don't always mean it. But God always means it. That's what a marriage is. The strongest possible bond. There are a lot of relationships that we value in this life, but, you know, family is a little bit different. Sometimes we would look at our families and we say, you know, if I had my way, maybe I'd have chosen a different family. Well, you know what? You can't change the one you have. Sometimes we look at our relationships with our siblings and we say, I've never really gotten along with my brother all that well. You know what? That's still your brother's going to always be your brother. We look at our sister and we say, well, we just haven't been as close as I as I would have liked it. Well, you know what you can do? You can work on that relationship and make it better or you're just going to have a bad relationship with your sister because it's going to always be your sister. You can't change some things. You can't change family. According to God's design. You can't just run out here and change your marriage either. You say, well, if I had this to do over again, well, you don't. You can work on it. You can invest in it. You can make it better. Or you can limp along unhappy because this is the one you get until somebody leaves this earth. Strongest possible bond. I know that God gives a special permission in Matthew 19, 9 and following where he says that if someone has violated this covenant in a specific way, that is to say, if they have been unfaithful sexually, they've committed fornication, then that would give the one who has not done that the right. They would have the option then to to recognize that the covenant has been violated in this one way, and they could put away their spouse and still be acceptable to God. But you know what? He doesn't require it. When I look at the relationship that God maintained with Israel, that was a spiritual marriage that he had with Israel, and Israel was unfaithful to him. So often he would call them adulterers and adulteresses, but he continued in that relationship with them for hundreds of years. Marriage, I say to people when I talk with them, is grown folks' business. not something you play at. It's not something you try and see how it works out. You enter into a relationship like this. The only way for it to be broken and everybody still be all right with God is when somebody leaves this earth. I wish more people would think about marriage like this before they enter into it. I wish people would stop looking at marriage as an exchange of goods and services. 
You see, because sometimes what you think you're going to get is not going to be exactly what you do get, but it's still a marriage. And God is right there in the middle of it. A second idea is important to understanding this marital covenant. Is that a marital covenant requires the utmost loyalty of the parties. You see there in Malachi 2, God is rebuking Israel because he says, you have dealt treacherously with your wives. You have mistreated your wives. You have not respected your wives. All covenants are designed to to give the parties to the covenant the greatest possible degree of security and peace and personal loyalty. Once it is formalized, the marital covenant is inviolable. That means it can't be broken. That's what Jesus said. If if God has put it together, don't let men try to mess around with it. They they can't break this and still be all right with God. I sometimes look at the the covenant between Jacob and Laban to help people to see this. Look at Genesis chapter 31. If you remember in uh, Genesis, we see that Jacob has gone to to find a wife and uh, he gets over there and he's got his eyes on Rachel and uh, Laban pulls a switch on him, you know. And so now he's got uh, he's got the one that he wasn't looking for. So he'll keep working. And now he's 14 years into serving Laban. And now he's got two wives. He's not only got the two wives, but he's got their maidservants. So now he's got four wives and he's had children with all of these women. And he's working and serving Laban and Laban is changing his wages left and right. He's being unfair. So Jacob decides that he's going to abscond. He's going to run away. Gets his wives together, gets his children together, gets his herds and his flocks together, and they leave. And they don't say anything to Laban on the way out the door. Now, Laban's not happy with that. So Laban has it in his mind to to run Jacob down to catch Jacob and to do some harm to Jacob because he's displeased. God intervenes on Jacob's behalf, appears to Laban and tells him, listen, What you've got in your mind is a bad idea. You don't want to do anything to this man. Now look with me, beginning at verse number 43, what happens, the exchange between these two men. Laban answered and said unto Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, and the children are my children. These are the offspring that Jacob has had with his daughters. And the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. And what can I do this day unto these my daughters, or unto my children, whom they have borne? And now come, he says, and let us make a covenant, I and thou, or you, and let it be for a witness between me and thee. They take a stone according to certain customs. They set up a pillar and so forth, and and they begin to speak around it. In verse 48, Laban says, This heap is witness between me and thee this day. Therefore shall the name be called Galid. If we drop down to verse number 50, he says, If you shall afflict my daughters, and if you shall take wives besides my daughters, no man is with us. God is witness between Me and you. And Laban said to Jacob, behold this heap and behold the pillar which I have set between me and thee. This heap is to be witness and this pillar is to be witness. Now listen to it. Listen to what the pillar is supposed to be witness of. That I will not pass over this heap to thee. And that thou or you will not pass over this heap and this pillar unto me. 
for harm. These two men entered into a covenant in order to make sure that there would be peace and loyalty between them, even when they were outside of one another's sight. Laban is concerned. You have my daughters, you have my children, my grandchildren, and I'm not going to be with you. I'm not going to be able to protect them. Let us make this agreement before God. You won't ever take another wife besides mine. You are going to take care of these children of mine. And if you ever come this way again, you will not do it to do me harm. And though I had it in my mind to do you some harm because of this covenant that we have made before God, I will never cross over to do you harm. We're going to have one another's best interests in our hearts at all times. Jonathan and David had a similar kind of understanding. You remember that uh, Jonathan's father, Saul, Wanted to kill David. Tried to kill David on more than one occasion. When David went to Jonathan and told him that his father was trying to kill him, Jonathan didn't want to believe that. He said, listen, uh, my father would not do something like that without telling me, well, your father was trying to protect you because he knew how you felt about David. But yes, he was. They concocted an agreement. They came up with a scheme and they said, listen, here's what we'll do. I'm going to tell, I'm going to tell, David asked him, tell your father that I'm not going to be there for this new moon feast. I'm going to be with my family and see how he responds. If he responds in a favorable way, then maybe everything is all right. But if he doesn't, then we know that he's trying to kill me. And they come up with a signal, a sign where Jonathan would let David know if it was safe for him to return. Jonathan goes into his father, tells his father the excuse they had agreed for him to give, and his father became irate after hearing it the second time and announced that he did, in fact, want to kill David. Now, Jonathan was in a position. This was his father. This was his king. Certainly he owed him a duty of loyalty, did he not? But he went to David and told David, It wasn't safe for him to come back. Now, why did he do that? This was his brother by covenant. He owed him a duty of loyalty that surpassed his duty to his own father. He owed him a duty of loyalty that surpassed his duty to his own king. What I'm saying is that in your marriages... Husbands and wives owe one another the utmost duty of loyalty. You can't put anyone, you can't put anyone above your husband, above your wife. You know, the Bible says in Genesis 2, uh, when Adam receives his wife, uh, the acknowledgement is made, uh, For this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife. I I know father and mother are important. I know father and mother are family. But when you enter into this kind of relationship, this one surpasses your commitment to father and mother. You leave them the utmost duty of loyalty. You owe it to your husband and your wife. Nothing and no one. 
more important. Now, I know God is number one. But there's no one closely behind husband and wife. They're number two. Sometimes I'm distressed when I talk with people and I see they don't understand this duty of loyalty. Husbands running out on their wives. Wives running out on their husbands. Whether they physically leave or not, maybe sometimes they're right there in the same house, but but they're not there for each other because they've got so many other things they want to do. Advance in their careers and, and advance in academia and so forth. And they've got all of these various life goals and, and they want to keep this one happy and that one happy. Listen, when you agreed to marry, you agreed to put the, the holiness and the healthiness and the happiness of your spouse above all others. Honesty and faithfulness between husbands and wives in the face of temptations and trials. It offers security. It offers peace, unparalleled in all other human relationships. Conversely, dishonesty and infidelity in a marriage relationship does more harm has a more profoundly detrimental impact than it can have in any other relationship. You know, when people marry, they oftentimes specifically acknowledge this. Do you take this one to have and to hold? And then they'll say, in, in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, for better or for worse, listen, they're saying, do you agree to be there with this person and for this person no matter what happens, no matter what comes? Do you agree? And people say, yes. Problem is, they don't always mean it. When I counsel with people, I say to them, listen, what kinds of plans and hopes and dreams do you have for your marriage? And they lay it all out. Great, that's fine. I hope all of that happens. Now, what, if you, what do you do if six weeks after you marry, you find out that your spouse has been diagnosed with a terminal illness? That's going to throw all of those plans, all of those hopes and dreams, going to throw those out of whack, right? What are you going to do? Because when you marry, you agree in sickness or in hell. And what I'm trying to help you understand is if you stay married long enough, both are likely to come. You know, people will say, well, here's what I want to do professionally. Here's what I'm trying to accomplish. And listen, that's great. That's fine. All that works out for you. Then you're thinking about richer. What are you going to do when poorer comes? Because if you stay married long enough, guess what? Both are likely to come. It's good when it's better. What about when it's worse? You got to be loyal. Husbands and wives should be able to live their lives knowing that whether they can see each other or not, they always have one another's best interests in their hearts and in their minds. That's what a covenant is. I've talked with people uh, 
who are older, much older than myself, you know, I, I, I know that there was a time in our society where people just, it didn't matter what happened, they just wouldn't get divorced. I mean, they just would not get divorced no matter what happened. I've had occasion to sit and talk with people sometimes who've been married for 30 years or 40 years or 50 years, and, and I want that, you know, and so sometimes I'll ask them, well, what's your secret? You know, what have you done? How did this happen? And people would say things like, well, I wasn't going anywhere and neither was she. We just weren't going to quit. We didn't consider it an option that we would break up and mistreat and run out on each other. We just didn't consider that an option. People would say things like, well, we just uh, kept going day after day after day. And as we looked up, it messed around and was 50 years. This is important because people do not have the proper motivation to give their marriages everything they have if they always consider quitting and running out an option. Marriages would be a lot better. People would be a lot holier and healthier and happier if they understood this duty of loyalty. A third idea about marital covenants, and this clearly distinguishes covenants from contracts, is that they always involve spiritual ramifications. You know, in Malachi 2, the Bible says God is witness. He was witness to the agreement that you made. In 1 Samuel 20, in verse number 8, the Bible says the the covenant between Jonathan and David was, was of the Lord. And in Genesis, in discussing the the, con- the covenant between Jacob and Laban, the Bible says two times there that, that God was to be witness between the two of them. A marriage covenant always involves spiritual ramifications. There's a religious duty overseen by Jehovah himself. I looked in one of the leading lexicons on this. I just like to do that sometimes, try to get a historical understanding about some of these concepts and some of these terms. I looked in one of the leading lexicons to see what it had to say about this idea of covenant. And it said, violation or depreciation of the accepted duty is recognized to be sin in the strictest possible sense of disregard for the will of Yahweh or Jehovah. To forget the covenant of brethren is to awaken the wrath of Jehovah. And listen, we all know that's true. You think about the relationship that God entered into with Israel out there in the wilderness. He's got them out there as they've left out of Egypt and he's preparing them to go into the promised land. He enters into a covenant with them and he says to them, I will be your God and you will be my people. They entered into a relationship that made them different. It bonded them together in a way that was different than God's relationship with everybody else. It came with the duty of loyalty, a duty that was different than the ones that God expected from everybody else. He says, I have this special relationship with you. I will be there for you. I will bless you and you will worship me and me only. Loyalty. As long as you do that. I'm going to keep blessing you. When you break that. I'm going to punish you. Spiritual ramifications. Marital covenant still has spiritual ramifications today. Marriage is always witnessed by God, Malachi 2 and 14. 
God always has to ratify a marriage. If people try to enter into a marriage that's outside of his design, listen, they can call it whatever they want to. It's not a marriage. But when two people who are eligible to marry and they come and they exchange those vows before God and man, whether they want to recognize God's part or not, he ratifies that relationship. Matthew 19 and 6, he joins it together. And he administers. And he judges. When you violate a covenant, you violate your marital covenant, you run out on your spouses, you mistreat them. Brothers and sisters and friends, I, I just want us to make sure we understand this. That's sin. And sin separates people from God. There are spiritual ramifications for this. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. There are some places in the New Testament where God talks about uh, covenant breakers. So like in Romans 1, for example, in verse 31, he talks about covenant breakers, and this is a sign that people have just completely disregarded him and don't want to know him anymore. You look at uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, the Bible talks about those people who will not inherit the kingdom of God, and the Bible specifically mentions covenant breakers. They're spiritual ramifications. And for all of you husbands, I just invite you to remember 1 Peter 3 and 7. The Bible says you have to love your wife, you have to honor your wife, your joint heirs together with your wife. And you need to make sure you do that so that your prayers are not hindered. They forgot that in Judah and Israel. And it hindered their ability to worship and serve their God. We got to always remember it. There's these spiritual ramifications. There's no more significant relationship that human beings can enter into with one another than marriage. Strongest possible bond, the utmost duty of loyalty. God is right there in the middle of all of it. And he's witness to how we treat one another, isn't he? If you want to understand the Bible, this is one of the ideas that you have to understand. The idea of covenant, the idea of marriage. And it will bless your life, I'm telling you. It will bless your marriage if you can understand these three basic principles and you can incorporate these into how you deal with your spouse. It will bless your marriage. It'll bless your children's marriages. But before you ever get to that, see, it'll bless your relationship with God just to understand it. Even if you're a single person, even if you're not married, some people say, well, I never want to get married. That's fine. Paul didn't either, but he understood this. And it blessed his relationship with God. Here's how and here's why. God still esteems covenants very highly, and God still enters into covenants with people. And when people enter into a covenant with God, they form the strongest possible bond with God that they can, and they incur and also receive a duty of loyalty from God. And, of course, there are spiritual ramifications. What do I mean? Jesus Christ is the son of God. He came to this earth, lived a perfect and sinless life and sacrificed himself so that people could be reconciled to God through his blood. Second Corinthians five eighteen and following. 
Those who accept the sacrifice of Christ on the cross are able to enter into a relationship with God whereby they will become his family in a way that they were not before. Strongest possible bond. He is father. All those who accept Christ, sons and daughters. God is going to bless them in a special way. He's going to to love them and esteem them above all the peoples of the earth. And they are going to be duty bound to glorify him in everything that they do, to worship him and to serve him a duty of loyalty. And God is going to save all of those who accept that duty and follow it through faithfully. And he's going to judge those who don't. The Bible tells me that the church is the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5 lays that out so beautifully. The church is the bride of Christ. And I hope that these ideas will help you. I mean, I really hope that you'll meditate on them. I really hope that you'll try to to live in your married lives. And those of you who hope to marry, you'll walk into your married lives with these ideas at the forefront of your thinking. I'm telling you, they'll bless you. They'll bless you each and every day just in terms of how you walk with God. If you've already obeyed the gospel, that means you're in this covenant relationship with him. Walk faithfully, respect your relationship with him, honor the covenant that you have. If you haven't already obeyed the gospel, if you haven't already been baptized for the remission of your sins according to the scripture, wouldn't you want to be in this special relationship with God? See, this is your opportunity. God is uh, standing at the altar, as it were. And he's willing to exchange vows with you. Are you willing to exchange vows with him? Become part of his family. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God, then you have to repent of your sin. You have to confess Christ with your mouth. You simply say with your mouth what you believe in your heart. I believe Jesus Christ is the son of God then you'll be fit to to enter into that marriage ceremony. You're baptized to have your sins washed away. The Bible says we're baptized into Christ. That's how we come into this relationship with him. Romans 6, we're baptized into it. Then we come up out of the water to walk in newness of life. We have a new relationship with God by virtue of our obedience to the gospel. If we can help you, you know what? We would love to do that. It may be that you stand in need of prayer. This is a perfect time for it. Don't let the opportunity pass. If you stand in need of prayer because you want to do better in your married life or you want to do better in much anyway, this is the perfect time for us to pray with you. If you would like to obey the gospel and become part of the family of God, this is your opportunity. As we stand together and sing,